This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 24, William the Illegitimate. zoom back in on Normandy, and we will seek to do a couple of things. We will seek to understand what awoke Normans in the 11th century. We will see what it took to become a Norman knight, arguably the fiercest warrior of its day. And finally, we will take a closer look at William, the son of Duke Robert I, and how he spent his first seven years in the shadow of his father. I hope you enjoy the show. The 11th century was the century of the Scandinavians. After two centuries of planting their seeds across Europe, beginning for all intents and purposes in 793 with their raid on Lindisfarne, they were rooted enough to begin to rise to the top of the medieval pecking order. As we've seen, the North Sea Empire, though brief, upset the status quo of Northern European politics just enough to usher in a brand new generation of leaders. At the edge of the map, Swedish Vikings had assimilated into native Slav and Pole communities to form the Rus, and it was the 11th century when their famous Varangians became the stuff of legend. One product of the North Sea Empire and the Varangians would rise in Norway in the latter half of the century to change the course of North Sea politics. After a century of assimilating into French culture, Northmen came to be called Norman, and it was these Scandinavians that we're focusing on in this second season of the podcast. But this assimilation into French culture and society, to politics and economics, wouldn't come without a touch of bitterness. It's no secret that they found themselves in unwanted and tolerated addition to the established nobility throughout the kingdom of West Francia, and with that status came a bit of an inferiority complex in the Normans. And it was from this that the Normans of the 1000s began to wake up to their long-dormant, domesticated Viking natures. But it's worth taking a little time to fully understand why they were waking up at this particular time. What was happening in Normandy that would necessitate such a reaction? What were the outside influences that caused many Norman families you know, to get restless. Where did this inferiority complex come from, and who would take the ultimate reins of this Norman explosion, an explosion of both military as well as cultural natures? 
onto the world stage in the middle of the 11th century. So, to answer these questions, we'll need to start at the beginning, like before Normandy. The whole big, messy, fascinating story of France's early, earliest days begins with Charles the Great, known today as Charlemagne. Charles was not quite the Great yet, but he was the King of the Franks, a large community of scattered Germanic tribes who shared a common language, or lingua franca, as it's still known today, in northwestern Europe. Since before Julius Caesar's wars in Gaul, the ancient name for modern-day France, the Franks came, or the Franks gave the, the Romans innumerable fits as a stubborn people who refused to be conquered. Charles was crowned their king in 768, and then in the mid-770s, King Charles took the crown of another ancient Germanic people called the Lombards, who had already taken root as far south as the Italian peninsula. And on December 25th in the year 800, the Pope surprised this king of the Franks and Lombards with a long-forgotten crown, that of Roman Emperor. Charles the Great reigned for the next 14 years before he died, leaving the empire to his son, Louis the Pious. He created a dynasty of emperors that would pass from father to son, more or less consistently, until the year 888. This dynasty was called the Carolingian dynasty, named after Charles, or Carolus, in Latin. As we've heard already on the podcast, all we really need to know about his line is found in the names of each successive emperor. Beginning with Louis the Pious, Charles' first heir, they were Lothair I and Louis II. Okay, so far so good, but then we see Charles the Bald and Charles the Fat. Now, there's nothing wrong with being bald or fat, but, I mean, they're no, you know, they're no the great or the brave, the conqueror, or the pious, right? If anything, those names show the respect that their contemporaries and historians since then have afforded those men based on how they ruled and the state of the empire during each reign. After Charles the Fat, however, we see, in the 890s, the Carolingian emperor who really will seal the deal for the dynasty, the kingdom of West Francia, and the empire as a whole. In 893, a 14-year-old boy named Charles, shocker, would not become emperor. Instead, he was only crowned as King of the Franks, again, just one piece of the Holy Roman Empire. And to boot, he wasn't even recognized king. Charles was crowned, but he had to wait until his opponent, King Odo of Reims, died in 898 to assume the powers of the crown. Years of Carolingian weakness and failures had led to his denial, though it probably didn't help that his father's name was Charles the Stammerer either. This plain boy with little charisma and even less military prowess, a boy who would one day earn the name Charles the Simple, by the way, would usher in a new age, not just for West Francia, but also for Europe as a whole. In fairness, Charles the Simple inherited a a bit of a mess. Between 895 and 900, the feared Norse Viking Rollo the Walker began looking south to the mainland and seeing wealthy ports along the English Channel, while his counterparts, such as Gunrith, 
wreaked havoc on the island kingdoms around Britain, namely the Kingdom of Wessex and its legendary King Alfred. It was as Charles the Simple took the reins of his crown that Rollo stood on the northern shores of West Francia. He then stepped inland further and further, wreaking havoc wherever he went. Looking south, Rollo led his men down the River Seine, and eventually in 911, he would lay sieges on Paris and Chartres. After his army notches a win in Chartres, Charles the Simple decided to bring Rollo in for negotiation of terms. Why? I mean, why would a king, seriously, why would a king who had just won a small but decisive victory against a feared and hated foe seek peace? Why not pursue the enemy and devastate them once and for all? Well, Charles the Simple was stuck, to be honest. He was in quite of a bind. On his northern shores, as we just said, as far inland as his front doorstep in Paris, he had these Vikings, right? However, on his eastern border, with a largely forgotten kingdom, a kingdom that served as an effective buffer between the kingdom of West Francia and the kingdom of East Francia, which is today Germany, was a kingdom called Lotharingia. Charles was also the nominal king of that kingdom as well. His influence was hardly visible there, but it it was accepted that the Carolingians were its authority. East Francia, however, had recently elected a non-Carolingian to its crown, named Conrad I, and, and King Conrad was making major plays against Lotharingia. Charles the Simple had a difficult decision to make. Protect his eastern borders against an encroaching threat? Or or negotiate with terrorists. Well, he gets a lot of flack for his decision. There's no doubt about that. But given the situation, we can't help but ask what we would do if we were in his position. Would we seek to shore up support and bolster the protection on our eastern border against an enemy that we understood? An enemy that thinks much like we do? An enemy whose motivations are ones we also might have at some point? Or... Would we seek to sacrifice our entire border, allowing the loss of an entire territory so that we can deal with a small group of marauders on our northern shores? And also remember, by 9-11, there's no doubt that stories had crawled their way across the continent, telling of the, the great king of the Angles and Saxons, Alfred, and how he proved that negotiating with Vikings wasn't the only option. You could stand up to them. You could defeat them. Heck, you could even force their leader to convert to Christianity upon defeat, which is what happened to the Viking leader Gunrith. But again, what would you do? Would you pour all your resources to defeat Rollo? Or would you pour all your resources and manpower into a show of power against another powerful kingdom? In the end, it's hard to say what was the best decision. In fact, one could make the case that this is simply one more example in history of how, well, of how there's just no right answer. Charles the Simple, after his win in Chart, called Rollo to the negotiations table, and they signed the treaty, uh, the, the treaty named St. Clair de Upt, which stated that Rollo, in exchange for subservience to the king of West Francia, well, he could have his own duchy in northern France a whole patch of land carved out just for him and whoever he wanted to distribute it to. Rollo countered the subservience thing 
with a marriage into the royal house of West Francia to Charles the Simple's very daughter, Gisela. The king countered he would have to convert to Christianity, and Rollo agreed. Within just two generations, Rollo's Northmen were referred to as Normans. They had developed their own language in a sense, a Scandinavian-French hybrid, established their, their own political hierarchy within the duchy, with Rollo's descendants still holding the title of duke, and evolving their fierce fighting style to match the faster military styles of the continent, incorporating horses. In fact, as we know, by the 11th century, Normans were some of the fiercest horsemen in all of Europe. Those weren't the only evolutions of Rollo's band of Viking warriors, though. They are the most notable, at least. Instead of employing a specifically offensive fighting mentality, they were now more defensive in their approach as they weren't sailing the open seas any longer. They were now sedentary, having settled into villages and towns, such as the Hopevilles and the Tosnies. Castles erupted across the duchy throughout the 900s, and space began to get a bit cramped, as you can imagine. So, tensions rose, and they flared from time to time. If the duke couldn't settle it, then he would appeal to the king, who would help. Maybe. <laughs> In turn, Normandy would continue to legitimize the waning power and influence of the king of West Francia. It can be said that Normandy was as big a protector and proponent of the king as the king was of Normandy, but make no mistake, it, they were hardly friends here. The crown, regardless of who wore it in Paris, knew who these Normans were at heart. They were Vikings, and so did the rest of West Francia. Normandy wasn't the only duchy. And they were like the outsider who shook up the growing influence of the rest of the team. West Francia was, by 1000, a pretty complicated place. And you may get a little lost in this next little section here. But the main point in hearing this is more just to show and share how fractured and confrontational the kingdom had become. And let's be honest, how cramped it had become. See, in the northeast were the counties of Flanders and Vermandois which had spots that the king himself held full powers, you know, scattered across the countryside, such as Montreux, Saint-Lys, Attigny, Poissy, Paris, and Orléans. On its eastern border with Lotharingia and the kingdom of Burgundy, I need to clarify that, the kingdom of Burgundy was the duchy of Burgundy as well as the county of Burgundy. You know, just to confuse everyone centuries later, of course. The Middle Ages was great at leaving us with more questions than answers. There were also various counties in the east, though, but a few others with a larger local presence were the counties of Champagne, Chalon, and Macon. In the north were the duchies of Normandy and Brittany, and the counties of Anjou, Maine, Nantes, and Rennes. Smack in the middle, like a belt across the midsection of the kingdom, from the Atlantic Ocean to the all the way over to that kingdom of Burgundy, was the Duchy of Aquitaine, which will only gain in prominence in the next century or two, so keep an eye out for them. Also, in the center of the kingdom were the counties of Poitou, Marche, Auvergne, Blois, Bourges, Never, and Bourbon. And finally, in the south, as we learned in the last episode, against the Pyrenees Mountains was the Duchy of Gascony on the west coast, the county of Toulouse in the middle, and the Marquisat of Gothia on the Mediterranean coast. But inland from them 
were still more counties, and the bigger ones were the counties of Valais, Gévaudan, and Rouerge. Again, this isn't intended to add confusion, I promise. Rather, it's, um, it's meant to add context to the next part of this discussion. In, in a kingdom as fractured as West Francia, how can a largely ineffectual monarch manage these differing powers at each level, from the highest nobility down to its lowliest peasants in the field? Deep in the DNA of the Frankish people was a deep-seated sense of freedom. From its earliest days to the 11th century, they increasingly sought their own land to rule as they pleased. Sacrifices were made in the hopes for longevity, such as subservience to a far-off king, but in return, they negotiated borders and laws and interactions among themselves, despite their king's rulings in many cases. As these lands continued to divide through localized warfare and successions, more and more sophisticated systems of control and order were to be devised. In the end, we start to see the culmination of centuries of trial and error in establishing and maintaining authority up and down each local hierarchy. Normandy was a latecomer in this, but they caught up really quickly. Each successful usurpation of power, favor to the king, or land grab, ended in reward, and this reward was usually in that of a title. These titled nobles became known, in West Francia at least, as chevaliers. In English, we would come to know them as knights. In addition to the new title of nobility was usually a title to the land, and the authority that chevalier or knight had over it. Now I'm going to say a word that makes medieval historians honestly drink pretty heavily and then cry themselves to sleep at night, but it's worth explaining why I'll be using it going forward. The word is feudalism. Here's the truth of it. Feudalism was never a word used in the Middle Ages. It wasn't until some lawyers in the 1500s tried to name the unnamed social and economic hierarchy between the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire. The word itself is Latin in origin. Feodum means, essentially, fief. And a fief is a piece of land given as a reward for a service. You know, like if a king orders a man to quell an uprising or, or, or fight in a war, then that man is given a title of chevalier and title to a land as well. That sort of reward for a service. And what's done within that fief is largely up to the chevalier. Not all fiefs were created equal, though, and therefore neither were the chevalier who controlled them. Some grew to great prominence and wealth and influence, while others were largely poor compared to their neighbors. You can see this hierarchy among the nobility when you compare the influence and wealth of a duke compared to, say, a count, a marquis, or a seigneur. This social, political, and economic hierarchy hinged solely on the prosperity, and thus the size, of each fief. With his chevalier effectively maintaining order around the kingdom, the king could look to larger issues. However, by the turn of the millennium, there were so many chevaliers that maintaining peace and order among the peasantry was all well and good, but the nobility itself was becoming increasingly difficult to control. Take a look at the Hofils, for example, with their 12 sons, of which only one 
would take over the estate when Pops died. What of the other 11? So I want to stop there regarding feudalism. Just for now, though, suffice it to say that when the Normans take over England in a few decades from now, we will return to this subject and take a much closer look at it, as it will fundamentally change the course of that nation, and thus the world, forever. So, as we asked earlier, who would rein in the Normans, right? Who would force many Normans into submission while simultaneously earning the respect of everyone else? Though Dukes Richard I and Richard II were cert- would certainly quell the masses for a time and even connect their duchy to Saxon and Danish royalty, they would not have the lasting impact on Normandy that someone else would have. Duke Richard III wasn't really even given a chance to show his worth, while his brother would earn the sobriquet Robert the Magnificent. See, Duke Robert I began universally disliked, but ended nine years later a widely tolerated, if not fully respected, authority. But Robert, see, Robert didn't have an heir, though. Well, not a legitimate one, anyway. He did have a son, a boy named William, conceived out of wedlock to a beautiful maiden on the lower class, named Herleva, which was an all-too-common scandal in those two days, though Robert was never married. If there was ever a boy who idolized his father, one need not look any further than William. From his earliest years, William was doted over by his father. In William's veins coursed the blood of Vikings, of Rollo himself, and his father would cultivate those buried instincts as much as he could. But here's the rub. Though all knew the situation of William's birth, were convinced that William could never rise to the title of Duke, It was Duke Robert who seemed to not know that. Duke Robert, having subdued the duchies in fighting, repelled an invasion of Brittany and then making friends with that duke, launching an impressive, though an abject failure in the end, invasion of England to restore Ethelred II's and Emma's son Edward to the throne over Canute. Don't forget, Edward and Alfred are still residing in Normandy as exiles. And then Robert call, uh, then calling the church's bluff and decreasing its power over him in the duchy. Well, I mean, Duke Robert pretty much earned the right to do as he pleased within his duchy. And what pleased him most was focusing on his son. During that time, Robert was also able to surround himself with some of the most trustworthy Normans around. Not only did he have the support of King Henry I of France, but Duke Robert also counted on Osborne Fitzartfist, Count Gilbert, Duke Alan III of Brittany, as we've said, Archbishop Robert of Rouen, Gilbert of Brion, and Count Baldwin of Flanders. This was, as far as Norman politics goes, a dream team of sorts for young William. Robert issued his son to various knights who taught him the arts of warfare, politics, and academics, I mean, we're talking a very early age. At a very early age, William could not only read and write, but he began developing a a keen understanding of the rough-and-tumble nature of his fellow Normans. If anything, young William learned very quickly how difficult his path would be to earn his rightful place as not only a knight, but also as a worthy successor to his great father. 
he shared this difficult path with three of his closest friends, who will become increasingly important to his story as he grows into adulthood, as we'll see. William Fitzosborne was arguably his closest friend and would be a lifelong one at that. And you know, can we just take a moment? <laughs> I like to go off on tangents, uh, so you'll just have to excuse me. Can we just take a moment here to talk about names during the Middle Ages? It was during these centuries, from around the 700s through to the 15 or 1600s or so, when many of the last names we know of today popped into existence. Now, to be clear, it wasn't unheard of to trace the family tree back by their mother's or their father's name based on their culture. No, for instance, the Scandinavians, as we've already encountered with some of the names, had a system in place. You basically name your child a name like, say, Olaf, and then smash the father's name up against the letters S-O-N. Your child's name is now Olaf Trygvason, or Olaf, son of Trygvi. Other names we've seen are Knut Swainson, or Knut, son of Swain, Swain Knutson, or Swain, son of Knut, and Swain Haraldson, or Swain, son of Harold. But as you can see, there's a serious problem with that. I mean, how do you know which one came first? After the Norman conquest of England, last names would just begin to take hold, and one surname would be kept from generation to generation. This is a process that would take time, of course. But in the West, with the recent exception of uh, Iceland, who has embraced both patronymic and matronymic surnames, it has been largely customary to keep the father's name from parent to child. Other parts of this medieval landscape had you know, had their own variations of the same patronymic system, such as the Normans with the Frankish Fitz, as we've mentioned with William Fitz Osborne, or William, son of Osborne. In the Iberian Peninsula, the, the, you know, the beginnings of Spanish and Portuguese languages, they adopt the EZ at the end of names, so that, say, Juan Hernandez was actually Juan, son of Hernan, for instance. In Scotland, they added Mac, so that, say, Macalister meant son of Alistair. In the far east of Europe, the Proto-Russian people of the Rus, Slavs, and Poles begin attaching the letters I-C-H, or even O-R-I-V-I-C, to the names of their fathers, so that, for example, Grigorovich meant son of Gregory. In Ireland, they added the O apostrophe to the beginning of their founder, their, their family's founder's name, so that names like Hohara meant uh, son or descendant of Hera. Throughout Jewish history, they've split the son of and daughter of into Ben and Bat, while Ibn and Bint does the same in Arabic. Why did I put that into our story of William's childhood? Honestly, I really don't know. I just like learning and sharing what I learned, so... You know, there you go. I don't, I don't know. Blame it on William Fitzosborne. So speaking of William Fitzosborne, he would, as I said, become a very close friend and protector of Williams, as would boys by the names of Roger of Beaumont and Roger of Montgomery. These four boys would become the core of events to come. But first, they would endure some of the hardest training a young man could engage in during the 11th century, that of the Norman Chevalier, 
I can't remember where I first read this, but it stands out in my notes that I've made, so I feel like there's no better way to begin this part of the discussion of Norman Knights than this. So if anyone listening knows the source of this quote, please reach out and let me know. I'd love to give credit where it's due, and it's really simple. It's this, quote, No one stood grander than a Norman knight in the 11th century. Let me say that again. No one stood grander than a Norman knight in the 11th century. This powerful statement is backed up by the Byzantine chronicler and daughter of the great emperor Alexius I Komnenos. Her name was Anna Komnenos in her book, The Alexiad, when she says, quote, The charge of the Frankish knight was so powerful, he could pierce the walls of Babylon. So what was it about the Norman knight that made him able to instill pure fear in those they faced? even those as ancient and powerful as the Byzantines, the Lombards, and the many Arab factions they engaged with, and, and the English. Well, a few things happened around the year 1000 that forced a giant evolutionary leap in warfare and horsemanship. Well, I suppose to begin with, a higher saddle allowed a more evenly distributed weight on the horse's back, which lessened the burden on the animal. In addition, if war is a game of inches, then every inch higher the knight could sit could only result in better visibility on the battlefield, as well as a higher placement with which to strike an opponent on foot. The second one, I suppose you could say, was the, the stirrups, right? Stirrups in general were a huge leap forward, but these longer stirrups around the year 1000 combined with a higher saddle allowed for more maneuverability and a faster pace. By standing up during a full gallop instead of sitting, the horse no longer had the full weight of an armored knight bouncing violently on its back. Well, now the horse had the advantage of dispersing the weight from the side of its rib cage up around its sturdy backbone and down the other side. The third thing probably you could say was the, uh, the jousting lance. Originally, knights would trot around with a shorter thrusting lance, but as knights started incorporating the higher saddle and the longer stirrups, they also started incorporating more lethal and longer uh, lances. The thrusting lance was good for throwing because the horse wasn't nearly as fast before these innovations. However, now that the knight could find himself across the battlefield much faster, these new lances, they were a boon on the battlefield. So why not have a sturdier lance, right, to unseat his opponent with? Thus the jousting lance, a thicker, stronger lance with a metal wrist guard and pointed metal armor piercing tip was just what the Norman knight needed. And finally, the last innovation is arguably the real driver of this change. Before this one, horses could only go so far so fast each day. Though faster than an army on foot, a cavalry was still inhibited by its horse's ability to withstand the beating it took as it traveled across you know, the rocky surfaces of the Alps or the Apennines or the Pyrenees, or even the soggy, bacteria-ridden surfaces of Britain's marshes. Before the year 1000, you know, as far back as the Roman Republic, as far as I've found, it was common to wrap the horse's foot in leather wrappings as protection during hard landscape travels. But after the year 1000, rec records begin popping up 
of bronze horseshoes. And archaeological evidence has found holes in these bronze horseshoes. Archaeologists have also found nails accompanying these finds, meaning the development of, here it is, the nailed horseshoe. This expanded the durability of each hoof by multitudes. This, of course, does nothing but explode the versatility of the knight, who might have been one of the only people who could afford the bronze and then the iron in later centuries. This was the world that William found himself growing up in, a world of armored knights, devastatingly capable cavalry warfare, and a culture that took advantage, more than most others, of the industrial size innovations occurring around Europe and the Middle East. You know, whenever a discovery or invention or new system occurs in history, it seems that the society that embraces it first and fully is the one that takes a major step forward and becomes the force of change in its time. Now, the nature of that change varies, but they are a force of change nonetheless. We see this everywhere we look in history. William has trained in this new kind of warfare among some of the keenest and most dangerous experts in the trade. In fact, by 1066, spoiler alert, I suppose, as William drew nearer to Hastings in England for what would be his official final showdown in the war for the English crown, it's said that his personal troubadour, Taliaferre, at a full gallop, check this out, a full gallop heading toward the enemy ahead of William, was singing loudly these you know, various songs and poems, standing up high in his stirrups, one hand holding the reins, while the other threw his sword in the air multiple times, spinning it here and there, and, and then catching it with the same hand. To say that the Norman horsemen weren't the era's finest and fiercest horsemen would, would just be a flat-out lie. So back to William's training in the early 1030s. A Norman knight in training would have several steps to take before, quote-unquote, earning his spurs, as it was called, and becoming a knight. The first step was at home. A boy would be brought up at home for the first five or six years of his life, learning basic reading and writing skills, as well as the quote-unquote rules of being a knight, such as a universally accepted code of conduct that evolved after the 11th century. The boys in this future knight's household or village would engage in competitions and games that mimicked warfare, such as tag, hide-and-seek, wrestling, among many others. The second step, at the age of seven, the boy would become what's called a page, or a page boy. A page would be responsible for waiting on the knight, as well as the noblewoman of the household. From the dining table to his lord's clothing, the page was a servant, plain and simple. During this time, the page was also immersed in religion, care for horses, ideas about chivalry, hunting and falconry, and the very beginnings of warfare such as very basic battlefield ta tactics and strategies. The page would hear story after story of successful and failed battles and sieges and would be in a position to merely listen and learn. Beginning at the age of seven, the would-be knight was introduced to what was called, quote, the seven points of agilities. 
that all knights must be proficient in before becoming an actual knight. So in that stage of being a page, they would start this process. These uh, seven points of agilities were horsemanship, swimming and diving, shooting, such as you know bows and arrows, spears, axes, javelins, etc. Anything that you're launching, right? Wrestling, swordsmanship, the long jump, which seems kind of odd to me, and dancing. Yeah, dancing. And here's the kicker. Before being knighted, the squire would have to perform all of these consistently wearing a suit of armor. <laughs> In addition to all this, the page would be taught by the squire how to maintain their lord's armor and weaponry, as well as how to assemble it on the person. Battle axes, swords, lances, daggers... These all had special requirements for care, and they were all used in different situations of which the, 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 the Norman page would learn. Normans preferred the teardrop or kite-shaped shields to protect them shoulder to shin, a metal helmet for the head, obviously, and chainmail that covered the thighs, torso, and upper arms. You know, gauntlets and ankle protectors, uh, those, those protected the forearms and the ankles and feet, but many knights couldn't afford all of this, you know, a, like a full metal suit of armor. So leather was the next best thing for some of these pieces. The third step, around the age of 13 or 14, the page would be promoted to squire. And the squire was where the rubber met the road, so to speak. The squire would continue many of the same responsibilities as the page. But the squire now had the ability to be a part of meetings, which further expanded not only the squire's understanding of the inner workings of warfare, and, and the nobility for that matter, but also resulted in making crucial connections that he could take advantage of later in life, you know, social connections. They would of course continue their religious and Latin studies, and all the other things they learned as a page, including how to hunt and, and the highly prestigious activity of falconry for those who could afford it. Their practice on a horse increased considerably, as did their swordsmanship and archery. The squire would start to interact much more with others around him during this stage, too. He learned to deal with different types of people in different ways, as not everyone who worked in a, specific, or in a certain profession required the same amount of respect. For instance, concerning horses, there had developed a micro-economy of sorts. The Chevalier in France, Caballero in Iberia, Ritter in Germany, and the Knight in England, well, we already know what status they had, obviously. Those weren't the only horsemen, though. There, were, there was also the Marshal, who was responsible for the care of horses. This was the person the page would learn from specifically when learning how to maintain a knight's horse. That includes these new nailed horseshoes as well. The marshal held a very high rank in the knight's court and was usually a pretty trustworthy military strategist, too. Then there was the constable, or count of the stable, who was responsible for protecting and maintaining order within the estate, but he was also used in military matters and as well as organizing special events like tournaments and feasts. Horse dealers were a universally despicable lot, <laughs> despised lot, disreputable lot in medieval Europe, as they were often also involved in the stolen horse black market trade. 
but a page learned to negotiate with them too. You had to. The Hackney men were probably the most surprising, at least for me, as I had no idea the medieval economy could support such a market. The Hackney men were more or less horses for hire businessmen. See, they would more or less control a stretch of road and then rent out horses to travelers or business people. Basically, a car rental dealership. As you can imagine, hackneymen and horse dealers were often at odds, thus the practice of branding their horses became fashionable. So if all of this wasn't enough, the page had to learn what type of horse to use and when, and thus the squire had to be prepared with that knowledge already. So the squire would know that the ideal Norman warhorse was a destrier, which the name itself in Latin, Equus dextrarius, meaning right-handed horse, probably named because the horse leads its gallop with its right leg. But another tradition speaks to its name too. See, the destrier, it was customary for the squire to lead the horse on its right side as it walked along. The destrier was most often used in battles and in jousting tournaments, but little else. There were other horses for other tasks too. The courser was also for battles, but were mainly used in quick raids. The palfrey was used for long-distance travel and everyday riding as they were built sturdier and had a higher tolerance for work than the destrier and the corsair. And finally, the sumpter horse or pack horse. These were used for heavy loads and wagon trains. Needless to say, being a knight required far more than just learning to fight, though fighting was arguably the most important skill, as a dead knight was useless to his god, his king, his family, and his community. See, a squire now accompanied a knight into battle. This was their chance to stand out. This was their chance to prove their worth and show their valor and bravery. This was their chance to notch their first kill. Unknowable numbers of squires died during this stage, too. Make no mistake about that. There were far more squires who failed to make it to knighthood than actually made it. So when we do come across a knight's name in history, such as a, a Hauteville or a Drango or a Tosny or whoever, it's a testament to their courage and their character, despite how they use their status as knight afterward. And so finally... Should a squire make it to the age of 21, sometimes sooner due to proving themselves at an earlier age, they would go through a knighting ceremony, some called an accolade, while others called it a dubbing. That image of the knight kneeling and having that sword placed upon the left shoulder and then brought up and over his head to rest on his right shoulder is more or less historically accurate, but it wouldn't come about until a couple centuries after William. And that whole thing about now arise, sir, whatever, that's largely a myth, okay? Now, even in the 11th century, though, many considered the Norman practice of dubbing a bit on the barbarous side, something many non-Normans used as evidence to prove Normans were still the savages of their ancestry. Either way, much earlier than was customary, William, now just seven years old in the year 1034, received his dubbing from his father. I mean, as you can see, that's much earlier. And it was almost as if Duke Robert was preparing him for something. 
It was at a routine meeting with his noblemen when William was called to stand in front of the men who made up his father's rough but united duchy. I just can't imagine being seven years old and walking toward his father, past all those men, those Norman warriors who died for their duke at a moment's notice, men who could snap William's neck with no more than three fingers. The stairs must have been terrifying. The tension in the silent room as his father's booming voice called his name again to step forward. It, it must have been unbearable for the boy. Standing in front of his father, there were probably words explaining to the men what the duke's decision was and why. It was during this meeting, with William standing a few feet in front of him, that Duke Robert I, the man again who had quelled the quarrelsome duchy, some of the very men in that room, into some semblance of order, the man who cowed the church and his own king, the man who had no other heir but this illegitimate boy, the Duke of Normandy, asked his noblemen to swear their allegiance to William, to accept this illegitimate son as his heir, and to defend him to the death. One by one, these men in attendance, these Norman knights, these Frankish knights who were so, quote, powerful they could pierce the walls of Babylon, they did pledge their loyalty to William. His father must have declared him not only as official heir to the duchy, but also raised him to the rank of knighthood, though his education in such things would certainly continue. William must have felt enormous pride to have all those warriors, as well as his father, promising to keep him safe and to see to his upbringing as a collective force for not only his good, but the good of his family and of the duchy at large. And suddenly, without any warning whatsoever, Duke Robert gave William what was called a collie, a bare-knuckled punch to the face, a grown Norman warrior holding nothing back on his seven-year-old son waylaid him. This was the Norman way of accepting a knight into their nobility. Why? Why the need to bare-knuckle someone, a boy, for instance, across the face unexpectedly? You know, most likely Robert picked his son up off the floor stood the boy up in front of him again, grabbing him by the shoulders, and then explained. See, Normans believed that pain could be remembered far easier than happiness, far easier than pride. And I can't help but be struck by that idea. Does happiness define our lives? Or does pain? Either way, to the Norman, to Duke Robert, Pain would define his son's life. Robert held no illusions that his son would be welcomed with open arms by his nobility. There was no question whether, should he die, William would be challenged. William, being illegitimate, would have to prove himself to his countrymen. William would not have an easy tenure as Duke of Normandy. If Robert didn't do what he could to instill this in the boy then his boy would end up an accidental footnote in the historical documents, if anything at all. William's life would be, from this moment on, a life of pain and suffering and hardship. William's life was now defined by a father who loved him so much, which was the case, as I've said, as Robert and William were unusually close for a father and son in the Middle Ages. William had a father who loved him so much that he would teach him the hardest lesson of all, 
Life is full of pain and suffering and burden. You are a future duke. Your life is nothing but picking up the burdens of your people and carrying them. You know, it's almost as if Duke Robert had read Dr. Jordan Peterson way back in the 11th century when, when Dr. Peterson says, pick up your damn suffering. And he continues with, the purpose of life is finding the largest burden that you can bear and bearing it. And then he continues with, making happiness the key pursuit in life is just hopeless. It's just not a pursuit that's going to fulfill itself. And then finally wrapping his thoughts up with, be grateful in spite of your suffering. That one punch instilled far more in little William than an entire childhood spent in the stables, being at the beck and call of a knight and his family, or a lifetime on the battlefield. But every pain that is dealt begs one question. How will you respond? So, how will young William respond? I hope you enjoyed today's episode, further expanding on the Duchy of Normandy and the childhood of its greatest product. William has already seen so much through his typical noble upbringing as a future duke and knight, but if you can believe it, William's story is only just beginning. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you are so inclined. On the next episode, we follow young William as he navigates an unspeakably dangerous world upon the death of his father in 1035. This young boy will suffer in ways you and I can't imagine, and will respond each and every time in ways that call to mind some of the greatest stories of triumph in history. By all accounts, and I'll probably repeat this next episode because there's no better way to put it, by all accounts, William should never have made it to his 10th birthday. But he will. In fact, he'll have many more birthdays after 1035. Get ready for the next chapter in William's Rise as we follow him through the difficult years of his first conquest, that of his own duchy. I can't wait to tell you about it.